1: Hello listeners, welcome back to the New Books Network. I am Agat Guy, host of the channel. Today, we will be talking with Regine Spector about her book, Order at the Bazaar, Power and Trade in Central Asia, published in 2017 by Cornell University Press. Regine is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. She teaches comparative political uh, economic development, energy, and Central Asian politics. Um, Her current research examines examines New England energy politics and electric grid reform and the climate implication of our energy and water use practices. Regine, thanks a lot for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's really a pleasure. And uh, to start us off uh, with um, our discussion today with your book, I really wanted to ask you about your motivation uh, for researching this really specific topic.
2: Yeah, thank you. I came at this through a confluence of a number of different interests and life experiences. I've always been interested in everyday life and how people make meaning in whatever contexts they find themselves in. Um, My first travels to the post-Soviet region more generally were in the late 1990s in Russia and then in Tbilisi, Georgia, where I witnessed firsthand the implications of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the radical changes facing people in society. After that, I I worked at think Tanks in Washington, D.C., including doing some research on Central Asia. And I really uh, was inspired to go back to graduate school at that time to better understand what was happening specifically in Central Asia through through the lens of people living in the region and not through Moscow or Russia centric perspectives which dominated a lot of the literature in the 1990s. So in graduate school, I thought a lot about um, authoritarianism and and the resource curse and political economy in, in my classes. But I became really motivated, especially on my first trip to Tashkent in the summer of 2003, to investigate the shuttle trade and traders and bazaars, because everyone around me seemed to either be trading or have a relative who was trading. And the conversations on the ground really inspired me to make this uh, the, the focus of study. Um, unfortunately, due to events in the summer of 2005 in Uzbekistan and Andijan, I pivoted at that time to focus more on bazaars and trade in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Due to the closing of political space and challenges with opportunities for research in Uzbekistan that emerged during the time that my field research was ongoing,
1: I see that that's really interesting. And there's something that um, that came to my mind when whenever you you spoke. Um, like, could you a little bit explain to our listeners the specificity of bazaar in Central Asia?
2: Absolutely, yes. So. Bazaars, as we all know, exist in many different places and contexts and cultures around the world. In Central Asia specifically, um, they have both, I would say, a material and physical feel, as well as um, a particular set of understandings. Um, Just to give the listeners a bit of a perspective, the, the bazaars I'm talking about and the ones I'm researching are both wholesale and retail bazaars, especially the wholesale bazaars became huge commercial hubs in the 1990s and 2000s, huge source of employment, the main source of commodities that people would buy and sell. And to give you a sense of the height of the trade, um, just the containers alone, you know, there were shipping containers that were brought into many of the wholesale bazaars, um, they became both the storage units for goods as well as the storefronts by day. They were selling for as much as one hundred dollars or $200,000 during the height of the trade, um, as much as apartments in, in downtown Bishkek, which signifies how desirable they were, especially in, in certain parts of this bazaar that had significant trade turnover. Um, but going back to your question about what's specific about bazaars in the post-Soviet space more specifically, I think that um, one thing I noticed, especially in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, to some extent, is that while there was a history of farmers markets in the Soviet period, for example, bazaars, there were some new bazaars that that started in the 1990s, but some of them were either sp- Kalhosnirinki, farmers markets or flea markets, during the Soviet period that became privatized, essentially upon the Soviet Union's collapse. So while indeed sidewalks um, alongside the bazaars may be public spaces, many of the pavilions and trading rows and sections of, of the bazaars became privatized. And so in other parts of the world, you might see debates about public space and the right of traders in public or municipal spaces. You see this a little bit less in the post-Soviet context, I think because of the nature of these privatized um, land and, and, and working spaces. I also think you see some differences and understandings of those who ended up working in the bazaars. Um, I think in Central Asia, you have a particularly complex history and layered understanding of what bazaars mean to different groups. Um, whether it's ethnicities or um, citizens of these regions historically, you have histories of nomadic versus sedentary lifestyles and traditions, and they've played out differently in the bazaars at different time periods over the centuries and millennia you also have understandings um, that were imbued during the Soviet period around what it means to trade and what it means to work in in bazaars or marketplaces and um, in particular as I discuss a little bit later in the book there were many people from all different ethnic groups who found bizarre trade to actually be very shameful in light of Soviet understandings of reselling goods and speculation that um, became a predominant mode of thinking during the Soviet era. So I think those types of particularities, both in terms of property and governance, as well as understandings around work and trade and markets have have their own specificities within the post-Soviet and specifically Central Asian context.
1: Thanks a lot for this really complete um, answer. I, and I was also wondering, usually, historically, when we speak and when we think about Bazaar in Central Asia, we mainly think about Uzbekistan, which is also main, maybe why you started there. Um, and I, I was wondering, because now, whenever you go to Bishkek, so the capital city of uh, Kyrgyzstan, um, the main Dordoy Bazaar, which is a, a bazaar a little bit um, at the north, uh, let's say, of, of the city, um, is considered in, in Central Asia as one of the main bazaar, if not the biggest one of all Central Asia. Um, could you explain how? Like, how is, how is it possible? Why in Kyrgyzstan especially?
2: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think Kyrgyzstan had a very, very particular confluence of both liberalization policies as well as specific initiatives of certain individuals that that led it to be home to one of the biggest bazaars in, in Central Asia. I think in Particular Kyrgyzstan, as opposed to neighboring countries such as Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan, liberalized its economy very um, rapidly under the first president Askar Akayev, and by that I mean opened up the doors for movements of people and goods. Now, um, Kazakhstan did that to some extent, too. So just as a footnote, in Almaty, there's a very large bazaar there, Baraholka, which also became a huge wholesale um, bazaar in Kazakhstan. Um, but but these two countries, I would say primarily in Kyrgyzstan in particular, had favorable policies that allowed for movements of good goods and people. and then you combine that with a certain very particular history of Dorloy as a flea market that did exist by the end of the Soviet period and that had a certain space and place and understanding around um, the role that, that that place could play and and in a certain sense, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you had, uh, increasing numbers of traders who would sell the goods that they had at the bazaar and increasingly start to bring goods from China or from other parts of the world over. And, and the bazaar grew from people selling out of their trunks to very elaborate rows and, and systems of um, aisles and services, both physical and financial, um, including money exchanges and cafes. And um, that particular history, I think, is one that I, I talk a little bit about in, in the section on Dorle Bazaar in the book.
1: Thank you. That, that, was, that was really interesting. Um, and so I have the impression that there is a really specific relationship between the state and the bazaar. And, and the way the state is, is involved, or not, in I mean, yeah, involved in its own way in the bazaar. Uh, could you explain us a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think here I I had a particular set of understandings around the state, especially from afar and from reading some of the literature on and, and even experiencing what I experienced, for example, in, in the aftermath of the 2005 um, overthrow of, of Asghar Kayef. I think that the state is um, often perceived in the region as weak or as corrupt, or as chaotic, especially in the context of the overthrow of Akayev, and even under President Korman-Bakiev between 2005 and 2010 when I was primarily conducting this research. And so the perception was that the the state, while on the one hand it liberalized and opened doors for for trade and movements of good and people, on the other hand was, was somewhat chaotic and predatory from the perspective of bureaucrats and bribes and lawlessness. And I think that was the context that increasingly became encapsulated in governance indicators, rule of law indicators, for example. And what really struck me as I started to talk to everyday people and my friends and the networks that i had in the ground on the ground that that the situation was more complicated and that there were these understandings of of a certain order which is how i come to the title of the book and and the overarching framework order at the bazaar which was that people were thinking about not only the disorder and the chaos and the, even the violence, the lawlessness, but they were thinking about how to make their context um, and their work environment more livable, that, that they had certain rights, that there were processes that could lead to either respect or cleanliness or peace or a certain set of responsibilities. And it was all of these different understandings of of order that I figured out people were referring to, right, in different, depending on who I was talking to, people invoked different understandings of, of order and different contexts for which order was meaningful to them. That's how I arrived at the overarching framework for the book. And I think it serves as kind of a a way to think about how order in, in these local pockets or islands can exist within these broader states or state structures that are perceived to be either disorderly or chaotic or um or lawless. And I think that's that's kind of how I how I saw the the tension as it manifested in my own field research and I tried to unpack that in different specific contexts and and bazaars throughout.
1: And and speaking about order um like how did you come up with this term, is it part of an existing literature that you build your research around, or I mean, could you describe what you mean um, by order?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there there was a, there's in the social sciences more generally this question of political order or social order. I think is well established whether it's going back to Huntington's political order and changing societies or, or back to core theorists such as Weber or or Smith even right who, who are thinking about order, uh, social political economic order. I think for me the there was an emergent body of, of literature on Central Asian societies and politics including people who were who were looking at, political order in terms of authoritarian regimes or or economic micro-orders, for example, Rano Torev's work on this. And I started to think about order through the lens of both these broader theories in the literature, but really very much from the perspective of the conversations and even the, the documents in the newspapers I was reading. So for example, there were newspapers, I started to do this research in the in the libraries and found newspapers where the headline was Paryarak Nabazar, right? Or, or Biz, or, or Bardak, right? Or these terms that describe order and disorder. And I realized that this was a core overarching discourse and framework in a certain sense for everyday people. And I think that's really what brought me to to the the concept, um, and I would say Fred Schaefer's, you know, elucidating social science concepts, and and this idea of immersing yourself in, in a local context and understanding what a particular concept means to everyday people is, was a guiding tenant of the book. So he does this with concepts such as democracy, which we know have many different meanings depending on the culture and the context and and even the group of people that you're talking with. And so I thought, if we take a concept like order and, and do a similar kind of in a certain sense, unearthing or excavation, then that would help us shed light on broader state society relations and transformations of, of political economy and society in this context
1: i see and, and before you you also spoke about different understanding of the bazaar especially depending on the ethnicity depending on the background um i guess age also um is there similar processes patterns uh, with older
2: yes yes so i think depending on who you talk to right you get different understandings of, of what order means. So for example, if we take Dordoy as an example of a bazaar, I was very attuned to talking to different people at Dordoy. So not only traders and subsets of traders, for example, some of the elders who took on responsibility within this trade union at the bazaar, but also the owners. And, and while I didn't actually interview the owners of Dordoi. there were significant press interviews with the owner. So I used many of these interviews in the local press, both in Russian and in Kyrgyz as a foundation to understand how he talked about his role. And here, I think for him, order was very much a kind of political economic order. That is an understanding that it was his role to kind of create almost a stability, a political cover to allow infrastructure, roads, electricity to be built to service the burgeoning trade, and for him to create the political connections, including through his member of parliament status, to be able to provide that. And I think over over time, over the last few years, we've had a number of other really interesting examples of this type of patron um, in society in Kyrgyzstan, specifically, whether it's, you know, Aksana Ismail Bekova's work um, on Rahim and, and Blood Ties in the Native Son, or Morgan Luz's work, work on, on a patron in the south of Kyrgyzstan, Batyarov. They played these roles um, to create a certain type of order and stability from there and uh, of their lens or their world of view, right? Um and yes, while it enabled a certain kind of elite and rentier class, you could argue, and this is this is the perspective of, of um Balhar and Almira Satepaldeva, right, that, that there are these huge inequalities and kind of rentier classes in the region. It also provided a certain order, I would argue, in political stability that allowed this bazaar to continue to prosper and Um, But then when you think about order from the perspective of, say, the traders in the bazaar, or those who are working within this context, we saw and had many examples of different types of disorder that they experienced, right? Whether it was the bureaucrats who initially were coming to take bribes all the time and in other parts of the city in the stores, you know, I would even, there was a store that I observed one time that would sell drinks in the center of the city. And I I stayed and I witnessed like five or seven different bureaucrats who would come in and, and kind of take their share. And I did not see that at Doradoi Bazaar. And I think it was precisely this understanding that they had the traders and then this trade union had created that allowed for um, less predation from bureaucrats in terms of everyday trader experiences, which was an important understanding of order for the for the traders. Um, And that in addition, they created other understandings of of what an honorable workplace would be or one that supported the traders, for example, certain trust between the traders in the rows, different forms of mutual aid that they would provide for each other. For example, if a trader was in a difficult situation, they would come together um, and celebrate certain holidays or meals together. And these forms of, of order varied, um, but, but took real form i think depending on the context and um and the situation so those are just a couple of examples from dordoy specifically
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Thanks a lot for that. I think it's going to give our
1: listeners more uh, understanding of what we exactly mean. Um, and, and I was wondering, as you were living in Kyrgyzstan, uh, did you see those concepts of orders um, spreading? among society outside of the workers at the bazaar
2: yes very interesting well the first thing i'll note is that this was not just the case at dordoy bazaar i know i gave some examples from dordoy but in my other experiences at, at bazaars such as osh bazaar which is also a big bazaar but it's in the center of the city and it's considered more of of a retail bazaar of, for produce and commodities, although it serves as a regional wholesale bazaar for people in the nearby villages. You had different forms of this type of order. Um, I think the contrast with that bazaar is really important because it shows that not all bazaars had the same ownership and governance structure. And because of its own particular history of existing during the Soviet period and then being privatized, and I learned this through very elaborate, newspaper articles at the time that kind of detailed some of the contestations around these privatizations and ambiguities. Um, you had other forms of authority and ways of thinking about order emerge. And I think this is this is interesting because at Dordoy, I didn't hear very much about, for example, Aksakals or other elder forms of authority, but that existed in an Oshbazar at least in certain pockets or people who self-identified as such, even even though it, it was interesting, some of the people in their 50s, some of the men, for example, said, well, I'm not a real Aksakal if you were to go to a village. But within the context of this bazaar, they narrated their role as resolving conflicts or understanding, seeking to forge understanding among traders or between traders and um, customers. So I think, I think society in Kyrgyzstan is highly diverse and very, um, and, and increasingly shifting and changing and looking for these pockets of order and, um, is is really fruitful, and so to answer your question about looking outside of the bazaar, I definitely found that in other contexts. Um, for example, in the in the period of the mid two thousands when I was in Bishkek, I heard and learned of this uh, apparel industry that was burgeoning um, in many basements and underground and. This was another space that um, I started to think about how a certain order was created or how at this time apparel producers or sewers or shop owners were dealing with similar challenges, right? Whether it's bureaucratic predation or the provision of electricity or challenges with supplies or with workers and sewers. And I think that Um, In this context, which I'd be happy to speak a little bit more about, there were similar types of, of contestations and efforts to create these pockets where, again, in what was perceived as a country that had a dramatic manufacturing collapse after the Soviet Union collapsed, right? You had huge manufacturing facilities that produced fabrics and yarns, and and they looked dead from the outside, right? Those buildings and and the supply chains crumbled. But within those buildings and in basements throughout Bishkek, you had a reconstitution of shop owners and producers who had small scale operations. And it was, again, this perspective that we need to talk with them and think about how they're addressing these same challenges with with predation and uh, cleanliness and lawlessness that that they were able to actually become huge as an aggregate, right? Um, A huge uh, peril-producing hub within Central Asia that was reconstituted after the Soviet Union's collapse.
1: I see. So would you say that, Bazaar, I mean order at the bazaar, as as you have been describing it, existed specifically in this context, or that it still exists today.
2: That's a great con- a great question. So it definitely existed while I was doing field research, and throughout the time of the 2010s, um, I I haven't been able to travel to Bishkek in the last few years, um, sadly, due to the global pandemic and to, to other personal challenges. So I can't, I don't feel comfortable speaking to the exact day and moment. But I will say that I, I think that the bazaar, while, it, for example, Dordoi, which has been presumed to be on the decline or, or dying many times throughout the past 20 to 30 years whether it's because of a financial crisis or because of border closings with neighboring countries and these are things that the traders cannot control right this is an uncertainty and a certain external shock that is extremely challenging for the traders and and that has caused and led to bankruptcy and and dramatic crisis for many of the traders despite all of that the bazaar does still continue um in the midst of a, of a global pandemic and now increasing changes and challenges uh, related to uh, what's happening in, in Russia and with the war in Ukraine. And so I think that um, I'm excited that there are other scholars and people in the region that are continuing to pursue research on, on this bazaar, for example, in comparison with other large bazaars for example in in georgia or other bazaars like the Bata i mentioned in kazakhstan and looking at them much more as as i i dare say an institution i mean i don't like to use that word but as i say a fixture of post-soviet central asian life and and economy and society um so I think that how, the cha- how we see changes, for example, in those external contexts, as well as changes with the increasingly um, pious nature of society and, and the role of, of Islam, for example, those are all really exciting directions that I know people are, are working on now.
1: Thanks a lot. I think that that is a great opening uh, to to the end of of our conversation. Um, I, I would really like to thank you to have accepted uh, my invitation to to speak with us today. Um, and maybe just to to give uh, our listeners a glimpse of what is next. Um, what are your nearest plans? Do you, Do you have any? Yes, absolutely.
2: Well, I'll just say, I'll just say one more word about some of the work that I did with Isel Khan if that's okay, on this apparel sector, because I think it speaks to some of these questions about creativity and order. Um, I think that when we were in Bishkek actually at the same time working on our own respective projects and and for this, I would really recommend the listeners to look at her work on um, the Islamic economy, for example, and the visions and futures that are being articulated with Islamic finance and halal commodities and um, as well as others right who are who are thinking a lot about about the changing nature of religion and society. we We were very taken by this, this apparel sector. And so we co-authored a number of articles on what it meant for people who were very highly trained and skilled, for example, during the Soviet period in crafts, artisans, craft producers, to become leaders in regional and global fashion. Um, in in particular this individual nepochiv, where many women in particular became um Apparel producers for everyone, from symphonies and local dance troupes to foreign consumers to local citizens with toys and weddings and celebrations, and they derived great pride from their work and translating Kyrgyz culture specifically um, and design and patchwork into fashion and, and and reconstituted their livelihoods in this way. We also sought to understand how these dead buildings that you know looked as if they were not working and dilapidated from the outside were actually home to electricity and booming apparel sector small shops and how they reconstituted their trade networks for example how they used the trade with Kazakhstan and Russia to and those networks and the cargo companies and and the systems that were Created and crafted during the periods of the 1990s and two, 2000s, to um, now export and be uh, intermediaries for the clothing that they would produce um, and re-export to Kazakhstan and Russia. and And we also looked at the my, I also looked at the labor and the changing patterns of movements of people that again initially traded, being based at Dordoi to their relatives or to networks in bazaars and other countries throughout the region, but used those networks and connections to better understand what types of goods people in Russia wanted, for example, or Kazakhstan, and make clothing that spoke to the needs of those populations, whether it was very particular styles of blouses or very particular patterns and and fabrics that Craftspeople and designers in Kyrgyzstan had a better sense of than than the producers in in more distant China, for example. And so those were all exciting ways that both of us, Khan and I, merged our interests in entrepreneurship and business in the region to better understand new dynamic sectors and industries. And um, I haven't spoken to all the challenges, and but um, of, of that sector and. But I think that gives a sense of, of some of the, the work we've done. And, and and right now I'm continuing to follow what's happening in the region in the midst of dramatic changes, whether it's COVID or, or, or what's been happening in, in the recent years. And I've also taken the time and the space in the midst of, of the pandemic to focus on what I believe to be an increasingly urgent global challenge that we face, but we have particular responsibility here in the United States and the West, which is to really reduce our carbon emissions and change the way we think about using energy. And I've become involved with some local organizations and and some research to try to make our own my own space and my own place more livable and um, to responsibly transition ourselves away from, from fossil fuels, which, um, as we're seeing, um, has implications f- far away, whether it's rising sea levels to melting glaciers in Central Asia, and um, I'm combining or in, in parallel with this existing work on Central Asia, trying to play a much more local role in um, changing how we think about it and use energy
1: well yeah kind of trying to make some order uh, i yes. will say around you
2: yes <laughs> i hadn't really thought about it that way but yes trying to create a new order in, in the way we think about and and use energy but that i think will have important regional and global implications if if we can if we can make the changes we need to make <laughs> in time
1: well, thanks a lot that that's really exciting um i really enjoyed speaking with you um and for our listeners if you wish to to read or buy um virgin books you can find it on Cornell university press um online and well yeah uh, thanks a lot uh, everyone and see you next time